You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, this is Tim Rice, and this is episode 57 of my podcast, Get Onto My Cloud. Over the years, nay, decades, I've been lucky enough to see shows I've contributed to, or in one or two cases, originated, see the shows reach places I never thought they would, viz. foreign parts. And in plenty of those foreign parts, English is, of course, not the first language. Although it might seem rather annoying for a lyricist to find his many long days and nights of creation slung brutally aside to be replaced by some total stranger's interpretation of his brilliant language, emotional acumen, and or subtle rhyme and scansion, there is an upside. Two upsides, in fact. Well, three if the show's a success out there. The first plus is a production of your show abroad is the perfect reason to visit the country where it's being staged, safe in the knowledge that your hosts will be delighted to see you and that you will receive VIP treatment from the moment you get off the plane, or often in my case, get off the train, as the railways are a much saner, less stressful mode of travel, which I use wherever possible. Especially in the early days when so many places were new and exciting to visit, I was always confident that two or three days there would be fun. Sometimes seeing the show was the least exciting part of the trip. The second plus of a foreign language version is that you see the show with fresh eyes, almost as if it had been written by somebody else. Even if the production is a faithful replica of a West End or Broadway version, the totally new vocals mean that other aspects of the work demand your attention. Take center stage, if you like. When I've seen, say, Jesus Christ Superstar or Vita or Aida or The Lion King in Czech or Icelandic or Japanese, I'm unable to worry about my words. Sitting through one of my shows in English, there are certain lyrics or lines here and there which I've never been quite happy with. Not that many, I hasten to add, although I have had critics who have implied one or two entire shows needed a complete new libretto. And every time, even decades later, I hear one or two of those weak lines, I wish I'd done something about it at the time. But even if a non-English show is in a language of which I have a tolerable grasp, such as French, I don't really worry about the lyrics. It may be pretty clear to me what's being said, but with the exception of French, I wouldn't really know if the translator or adapter is on a par with Keats or a Hallmark greeting card. And anyway, the most celebrated musical theatre translators, such as the superb Michael Kunzer in Germany, the late Pierre Delano in France, or Martin Biel in Holland, have had such great success in their home language with original work, any English wordsmith can relax when their names are in the programme. Adios und danke Magaldi, dein Job ist getan, auf mir kommt's nicht an, nicht für sie. Schreib dich noch schnell in ihr Gästebuch ein, das wär's dann, falls man dich noch mal brauchen kann, ruft man an, doch das ist Theorie. Oh, es ist traurig, wenn Liebe vergeht, am besten der Schnitt ist ganz platt. Drum geh lieber gleich, sonst ist es zu spät. Das heißt, hau ab. 
Jeder, der weiß, er wird geliebt, wird versuchen, daraus das Beste zu machen. さっと逃げるんだ今は金がないからいつもだけどさっと隠れる奴らは勝ってくれないクズクズと悪とこっちだよパン一つだけさ友達に助けてもらおうまひどく落ちぶれたわね今じゃ泥棒だわ親がいたら泣くわね生きるため食べるため他にどうしようもないそうだこんな奴らうまく騙すんだ was Good Night and Thank You from Evita in German, One Jump Ahead from Aladdin in Japanese, and I Just Can't Wait to Be King from The Lion King, Leon Kungen, in Swedish, I think. So, when I'm not worrying about the words, I concentrate much more on the music, the actors, the direction, sets, lighting, sound, and I'm reminded that they are all vital parts of the whole enterprise, and that I sometimes take that for granted. I may have had a few, not that many, issues over the years with foreign direction or casting or design, but the magic of the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber or Elton John or Bjorn and Benny will always shine through whatever chaos reigns elsewhere. I hasten to say that chaos does not often reign elsewhere, but now and then I'm relieved that a certain production is unlikely to escape too far from its origins. The first ever foreign production of one of my shows was Jesus Christ Superstar in New York, on Broadway, which was unusual, if not unique, for unknown writers who at that point hadn't had an official theatrical presentation of one of their shows anywhere in the world. I was a little concerned that the only way we could go after that was down. But hey, I attempted to make the most of it on and off stage. This might have been our only shot on Broadway. There were a few illegal productions of Superstar in the U.S., soon after the record was a whopping great hit there, which meant that our producer, Robert Stigwood, spent as much time in the summer of 1971 trying to shut the pirates down as he did setting his official legal production up in October of that year at the Mark Hellinger Theatre on Broadway. By the way, I reminisced about that production, directed by Tom Horgan in Get Onto My Cloud, episode 11. Tune in when this one's over. Obviously, there were no translation problems on Broadway, and although the show was a bit of a disappointment, 
following the truly astounding popularity of the album we'd released in late 1970, it still made its money back for the investors. Just. But they would have done better leaving it in the bank, although their local branch would not have thrown in a huge party in Central Park. A determined investor can usually get a fair chunk of his or her money back via food and drink on the opening night. Superstar on Broadway in 1971 cost $800,000, roughly £320,000 then, well under a twentieth of the cost of some big musicals today. This was principally funded by the Robert Stigwood organization, the show's producers, and by MCA Records. But I undertook to raise a small portion, $50,000, by offering my friends and family the chance to buy a share in the production. Here was a foolproof way to enable others to benefit from my good fortune. I took no investment share myself. Around 50 first-time angels, as those who finance shows are called, purchased a tiny piece of the action at $1,000 a unit. $1,000 gave a punter one-eighth of 1% of the profits. And if and when these profits came in, they were paid out every three months to the lucky investors. Stigwood paid my group of angels' income to me, and Fiona McKenzie, my PA, and I then divided it up, pro rata, among our friends and relations, who would doubtless be called loved ones today. Unfortunately, the loved ones did not turn out to be very lucky. The first payment was hefty and prompt, but as the show's box office wilted, the final installments took longer and longer to materialize. Most of my investors were uncomplaining and reassured by my confidence that they would eventually see a positive return. But one or two, inevitably friends of friends, certainly by now not loved ones, got rather stroppy towards the end of the run and demanded to inspect the full accounts. Their disgruntlement was doubtless fueled by the fact that the statements they received revealed that I was personally making around 1,200 quid a week for the enterprise my royalties being a straightforward percentage of the weekly take and unaffected by the overall success of the show's economy being based on income, not on profits. I was mightily relieved when I was able to send out checks to my supporters that took their payback over the 100% mark, but they never got more than a few pounds beyond that. Towards the end of the saga, I suggested that their modest returns should be reinvested elsewhere and included racing tips in the payout letters. A couple of these recommendations stormed home, turning a final 2% profit for my syndicate members into one of around 5%, at least for those who backed the selections. As the vast majority of musicals dispose of angels' shirts, trousers, and most visible means of support, these superstar virgins were in fact extremely lucky not to take a bath. I've generally followed the rule that one should never back one's own shows. After all, if they are hits, the creators earn anyway. If they flop, at least you haven't lost anything other than your time, effort, and sanity. I broke this rule in a big way when I sank, unwillingly, but that's another story, a small fortune into the Broadway production of Chess, an unmitigated financial disaster. Chess in London did pay back, by the way. Frightened off by the superstar Broadway experience, I failed to invest or indeed ask my loved ones to invest in either the London show or in a Vita in either London or New York, which followed a few years later. Needless to say, these were all huge hits. The anticlimax of Broadway was more than compensated for by the greater success in many European countries. Denmark was first off the mark, 
followed closely by Sweden, France, Germany and Australia. All these major productions ahead of the London opening, which happened in August 1972. All were hits, with a notable exception of Paris. I loved the Paris version, but not many Parisians did. The French are not known for their support of musical theatre. Even Les Miserables, written by their own countrymen, was not a massive success there. And the huge hype that surrounded Superstar in Paris, directed by the English actor Victor Spinetti, made the local critics even less disposed to like it. It ran for a few months in the Palais de Chaillot, a then modern hall near the Eiffel Tower, but despite all the efforts of the wickedly energetic French producer Annie Fargue, one of Robert's closest chums, it never caught on. Salvador Dali stole much of the opening night glory, preening his exotic garb and demeanour with wildian satisfaction from the most visible box in the house. A brief encounter between Dali and Frankie Howard was alone worth the price of admission. In Paris, the cast had beautiful voices, and Victor's staging was simple, fluid, and sympathetic to the work, but this was not enough. Some of the songs were, however, big hits in the French charts, including singles by Petula Clark and Anne-Marie David, the latter playing Mary Magdalene in the show. Both ladies scored with the French version of I Don't Know How to Love Him. Here is Anne-Marie, who incidentally won Eurovision a year later for Luxembourg with Tuteur Reconnaitra. You'll recognise yourself, although the official English version was entitled Wonderful Dream. Here she is with La Chanson de Marie Madeleine.
jamais donné Anne-Marie David, the French Mary Magdalene in Jesus Christ Superstar Paris singing I Don't Know How to Love Him en Francais, French lyric by Pierre Delano. The opening line being Dites-moi comment faire, tell me what to do. It's a great lyric all the way through. Thank you, Pierre. Interesting and successful, though some of these European superstars had proved in the opening months of 1972, we were still searching for the ideal director to introduce the show to London where the album that had stormed America had only done okay. Robert Stigwood did not want to risk the Tommy Horgan version in the West End, which not only for patriotic reasons was the most important market of all. It was the Australian show, as Robert Stigwood had suspected, that provided us with new inspiration for the West End. The young man Robert invited to direct the Sydney JC Superstar there in May 1972 was Jim Sharman, like me and Andrew, then in his 20s. Jim was on a roll down under, having staged a notable production of Don Giovanni for the Australian Opera, and then moving to the contemporary, the Oz version of Hair, which was enormously well-received. He was the obvious choice for Sydney, and Robert was very optimistic that his fellow Aussie would immediately demonstrate he could also be the man for London. Jim's triumph with Richard O'Brien's Rocky Horror Show was still a year away, and incidentally derived from Richard being one of the cast in Jim's London Superstar. I was red-hot keen to go to Sydney for the opening, not just to check out Jim Sharman, but because my long love affair with cricket had made me a confirmed Aussie-file. Ironically, my first ever visit to a country I've returned to around 20 times since 1972 coincided with the arrival of the Australian cricket team in England. It was the start of the Australian football season, and the one thing I had no chance of doing there was to see some cricket. However, I was not the slightest bit disappointed by Sydney. It is, of course, almost impossible to imagine anyone failing to be enchanted by this beautiful city. 
The Opera House was still under construction, and the cosmopolitan buzz that's such a characteristic of Sydney these days had barely begun to sound, but its matchless harbour and beaches, its relaxed and open people, its sun, its space, its architecture, mixing so many traditional 19th and 20th century English styles in both city and suburbs, with a twist or mantle of indigenous modernity and or provision for a warmer climate. All this was more than what was needed to ensure my first taste of Australia would not be my last. I loved hearing pop hits from the 50s and the 60s on the Sydney's oldie stations, which I'd never come across before, and which brought back many happy memories of a time I'd never known. Cole Joy, Johnny O'Keefe, Slim Dusty. How is it possible to feel nostalgic for times and places one never experienced in the first place? Sydney on the opening night was extremely warm. An exciting feature of the evening was an attempt at sabotage at half-time, when an unknown hand, allegedly that of an affronted Christian, cut the main cable linking the conductor to his orchestra via closed-circuit television. The Twelve Apostles and Jesus came out to begin the second act, unaware of this communications breakdown, and patiently sat at the table waiting for the opening orchestral notes. After a few minutes, it was clear that something was wrong, unless Jim Sharman had decided at the last moment to include a biting attack on slow restaurant service. Our Lord and his disciples eventually shuffled off, and the audience sat for another three-quarters of an hour before the main course was finally served. No one seemed to mind too much about the hold-up except for a few critics, meeting deadlines, ho-ho, although the Capitol Theatre did get swelteringly hot as the air conditioning seemed to have packed up in sympathy. The principal result was extra column inches in the press next morning. The saboteur was never caught. Sharman replaced the tricksy, complex, tacky elements of O'Horgan's staging by an almost Spartan space-age set. Much of the scenery, dominated by a huge dodecahedron, was clear plastic, and the costumes from no identifiable time nor place. Jim treated Superstar with considerable respect, in contrast with O'Horgan's apparent wish to emphasise brashness, vulgarity and shock value. Not that these are not elements of the piece, but I never felt they were the most important ones. Nonetheless, Sharman's version was highly innovative and very much of its time, very un-Broadway. The cast was strong, led by major Oz rocker John English as Judas and Trevor White as Jesus. I took a great liking to Jim. Although I had a few reservations about some of his ideas, I was more than happy when Robert offered and Jim accepted the London job. I still make a point of calling Jim whenever I'm in Sydney, which I hope to have the opportunity to do again before too long. Jim stated before the Sydney show even opened that he would not be simply repeating himself in the West End. The Sydney show was a big hit. In London, Jim did not repeat himself, and it was even bigger. Here's the late great Aussie star John English as Judas in the Australian original cast of Superstar. My mind is clear Oh, oh, oh. 
episode 57 of Get Onto My Cloud, written and presented by me, Tim Rice, and produced, Comme Toujours, by Peter Holtz. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org, because only together we rise.